In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com slash gold today to schedule your free HR audit. I want to wish all of my listeners a Merry Christmas. I am recording today's podcast on Thursday afternoon after the U.S. stock market has closed. Tomorrow is Christmas Eve day, but because Christmas falls on a Saturday, it is being observed tomorrow and the U.S. stock exchanges are closed in observance of the Christmas Day holiday. So the week has come to an end and the Santa Claus rally has certainly come early on Wall Street. The question is, will it continue next week or will the Grinch arrive? The Dow Jones was up 1.5% on this holiday shortened week, but the S&P rose by 2.2%. The reason for the outperformance were the tech stocks. They had a big week. That's why the NASDAQ composite was up 3.5%. Not too far behind was the Russell 2000 up 3.2%. Now, of course, the tech stocks and the small cap stocks had gotten beaten up more going into this week, so they benefited more from the rebound. But it wasn't just stocks going up. Pretty much everything went up. Oil prices were up about $3 per barrel on the week. Now back above $70 a barrel. We closed almost 74, 73 
82. Oil market looking very strong coming out of this recent correction. Also, interest rates were up. Now, that means bonds were down, but yields were up. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury moving up from 1.4 at the end of last week to just below 1.5, 1.493. 30-year yields rising from 1.82 to just above 1.9. Even gold managed to claw its way positive on the week. It gained about $12, but I think more significant than the dollar gain was the fact that we managed to close above 1800 about 1809 I think that's the first time gold has closed on a weekly basis above 1800 in about a month. The other thing impressive about gold's meager gain is that gold didn't go down because with rising yields and all the talk about the Fed getting tough on inflation, a lot of people would have expected the price of gold to go down Instead, it shrugged off that headwind and managed to go up anyway. In fact, even the gold mining stocks went up, although the seniors didn't go up a lot. The GDX was only up about a half a percent. Again, I think traders are reluctant to buy gold stocks given their negative view on gold. Yet despite this negative view, the price of gold continues to defy those experts and rises anyway. But the smaller cap mining stocks did manage to have a pretty decent week. The GDXJ was up just under 3%, 2.8%. So maybe that's a good sign for the overall market because it looks like the selling may be exhausted in those smaller companies. And that's, of course, where the downside was more heavily concentrated. They got beaten up more than their large cap brethren. So I think the fact that maybe we're running out of selling there could be a harbinger of a similar situation building for the larger mining stocks. And in fact, if we begin to build some distance between the gold price in 1800, I would expect to see a lot of buying coming in to that sector. Right now, people have been looking at 1800 as a bit of a ceiling. We need to turn that around and for people to start looking at 1800 as a floor. And eventually they will. Once they realize that there's no ceiling on inflation, they'll realize that there is a solid floor beneath both the gold price and the value of gold mining stocks. But the biggest gainer on the week was Bitcoin. Although it's hard to say because the week hasn't ended for Bitcoin. Because while regular markets are closed, the Bitcoin market remains open 24-7. So it will continue to trade. Now, as I am recording this podcast, the price of Bitcoin is just under 51000 per Bitcoin. That's a big move. In fact, a lot of that move happened today. In fact, all of that move, because a few hours earlier, Bitcoin was still trading around 48500 In fact, today is the first day Bitcoin has traded above 50000 in about two weeks. And I think this rally in large part resulted from a deliberate effort on the part of the Bitcoin whales to goose the Bitcoin price going into Christmas Day because I think that people who have a vested interest 
in a rising Bitcoin price so they can sell what they've got. They want a lot of people talking to their friends and their family members this Christmas about their Bitcoin profits to try to entice more buyers uh, to come in. And I think to do that, they want to have Bitcoin rising into Christmas Day. After all, if the price of Bitcoin were falling, that might have dampened the mood and they want everybody feeling joyous about their unrealized Bitcoin profits when they see a lot of their family members that they haven't seen in a while and they want to get these people into Bitcoin. Because again, this is a gigantic pyramid Ponzi type scheme and it is completely dependent on new money flowing into the market and having people feeling upbeat about their Bitcoin is a better way to do that. So in a very thin market, probably not too hard to drive the price higher. Plus, of course, in a week where risk assets did particularly well, as evidenced by the outperformance of the NASDAQ over the Dow, it's no wonder that Bitcoin did so well because Bitcoin is a risk asset. And in fact, I was laughing. I was watching a discussion on CNBC's Fast Money and all these guys are Bitcoin pumpers. They've all drunk the Kool-Aid. And one guy was pointing out how strongly Bitcoin was correlated to the NASDAQ, that it's now the highest correlation that he's seen in many, many months. And this apparently is a good thing because it shows that if you want risk, you can buy Bitcoin. So if you believe that risk assets are going to go up, well, Bitcoin could give you the most bang for your buck. Now, of course, everybody has been marketing Bitcoin as a safe haven store of value, as digital gold, Well, if it was digital gold, it should somehow be correlated to gold. But if it's correlated to the NASDAQ, why don't they just call it the digital NASDAQ, right? It's not digital gold. If it's more highly correlated with tech stocks, then it's a digital stock. It's not digital gold. But admitting that Bitcoin is just a digital stock or digital property, which is the way a lot of people like to describe it, it's digital risk property as opposed to digital gold, which would be relatively low risk property because gold is generally thought of as the risk off trade, as the inflation hedge, as an asset that you buy when you're worried about risky assets. If Bitcoin is the asset that you buy when you're bullish on risky assets and you want to buy the riskiest asset of them all because you think that return is therefore correlated with risk, meaning the riskier the asset you buy, the more money you'll make if risk assets go up. How can you then describe Bitcoin as being a store of value and inflation hedge? And in fact, on the very panel where this guy is talking about how Bitcoin is highly correlated with the NASDAQ and is a great risk on asset to buy in an environment where people are seeking risk and getting out of safe havens, I would have expected somebody to point out the inconsistency with that observation and the way Bitcoin is being marketed. But then somebody else on the panel said, you know, I agree with you, but it's also a safe haven. It's also a store of value and inflation hedge. And, you know, almost fell off my chair Because look at the degree to which these guys are going to go out of their way to pump Bitcoin. They apparently think Bitcoin is both a risk on and a risk off asset at the same time. In other words, Bitcoin is the perfect asset as far as CNBC is concerned. Because Bitcoin takes on the characteristics of whatever the buyer 
wants to believe. It's like a chameleon in that it kind of mimics whatever it happens to be on. So if you're looking for a safe haven and you're looking for a store of value, well, then you buy Bitcoin. On the other hand, if you're looking for a risky asset that could go way up, well, then you buy Bitcoin too. You can't lose. Bitcoin is good for any economic environment. It doesn't matter what you want. <laughs> if you want a safe haven or if you want risk, Bitcoin is your solution. Bitcoin solves that problem, right? Bitcoin fixes it. These guys are completely delusional on that network to not understand the inconsistency of their view because it's either one or the other. You can't be both, right? You can't be risk on and risk off. You got to pick one. The problem is the minute you pick risk on, you destroy the entire narrative of Bitcoin as digital gold or safe haven or an inflation hedge. But you can't deny that it's risk on because all of the correlations with Bitcoin are to risky assets. And in fact, I also thought it was ridiculous that on the one hand, you have this Bitcoin bull talking about how great it is that Bitcoin is so heavily correlated to the NASDAQ when once upon a time, the selling point of Bitcoin was its lack of correlation. People kept saying, hey, you buy Bitcoin because it diversifies your portfolio because it's not correlated to anything else that you own. They're now saying the reason to buy Bitcoin is because it's so highly correlated to the NASDAQ. In other words, there's always a reason to buy Bitcoin. They just keep making them up because initially you were supposed to buy Bitcoin because it was going to be a new media of exchange. It was going to be a currency that was going to be used for transactions. And then the minute that didn't work, it was reinvented as digital gold or a non-correlated asset. Well, now we've abandoned that because it's no longer non-correlated. It's correlated to the NASDAQ and it's not really digital gold. It's just a digital tech stock, except it has no earnings or it has no revenue and it never will. It's just pure digital hype. It's risk on steroids. And in fact, another sign that institutions are losing interest in Bitcoin to the extent that they ever were gaining interest. Take a look at the Bitcoin Grayscale Trust, GBTC. That trust hit a record 22% discount to NAV this week. That is the biggest discount in the history of the fund. And that shows that investors who want to own Bitcoin in a brokerage account are losing interest. And that would likely include some of the institutional investors who for custodial reasons and other regulatory reasons didn't want to just buy Bitcoin in their own wallet. They wanted their Bitcoin in their brokerage accounts. And so they bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. They're now looking to get rid of those shares. And that's what's driving it to such a big discount. Now, I did hear that on Wednesday, a couple of more applications for physical Bitcoin, not really physical because there is no such thing as a physical Bitcoin, but Bitcoin ETFs where you own actual Bitcoin as opposed to a futures contract or some other derivative, there were two more applications that were turned down. And I know one of the reasons that some people are probably buying the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is there is a hope that that trust will one day become an ETF and therefore the discount will completely disappear, in which case you could make a lot of money assuming the price of Bitcoin doesn't crash as you're able to sell for NAV. Now, the discount did 
narrow with Bitcoin rising on the week. And I think it closed at about a 17.5% discount. But remember, when shares of this trust were trading at a 20, 30% premium, I think the record high might have been 40% plus. On this podcast, I predicted that eventually that premium would turn into a discount and that would be a very bearish sign for Bitcoin. And I still believe that is the case. And remember, when this trust was trading at a premium, that was driving the price of Bitcoin higher because the trust was issuing these shares at NAV to investors who had a six-month hold But since the share price was at a 30% premium, these investors who bought at NAV immediately could mark to market their gains and those gains would reflect on their clients' statements. So they were able to pad their performance. But then the Grayscale Trust would take all that cash and they would use it to buy more Bitcoin in the market, driving up the price. And then they probably use some of it to run ads on CNBC to get more retail investors to buy, pushing up the premium, meaning there was a bigger discount that they could sell the shares to the institutions to. And this insidious process continued, or depending on your perspective, a virtuous process because it kept the price of Bitcoin high so that they can keep issuing shares cheap and then using the money to buy up more Bitcoin, generating the interest. And it was this whole dynamic that was going on. And I pointed it out. But I also said that eventually when the price of the shares plunged to a discount, that party would end because now nobody would want to buy shares from the company when they can go buy them in the market at a discount. When the company was selling them at a discount because the market had a premium, well, then Grayscale could keep selling new shares and getting all this cash. But now nobody is going to send cash to Grayscale to buy shares at NAV when they'd be overpaying. They can just go into the market and buy shares at a huge discount. But when they do that, Grayscale itself doesn't get any cash. So it has no ability to go into the market and buy more Bitcoin. In fact, the only thing Grayscale can do now with Bitcoin is sell it because there is a big 2% management fee that has to be paid. And in order for the fund to get the money to pay the managers, it has to liquidate its only asset, which is Bitcoin. But also shares of the Grayscale Trust directly compete with Bitcoin. Because if you want to buy Bitcoin, there is no reason to buy Bitcoin, just buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust at a 17, 18, 20% discount. Now, some people might say, but Peter, you know, it's got a 2% annual management fee. That's true. But if you're getting 17, 18% off, that will pay for a lot of years of management. And a lot of people don't have a five or 10 year time horizon. If you're buying some Bitcoin because you want to trade out of it in six months or a year, what difference does that make? You're getting a huge discount to buy the Grayscale Trust. Now, if you're bullish on Bitcoin and if the price of Bitcoin goes up, well, this trust is going to go up too, except it could go up a lot more if that discount were to narrow or if that discount were to go away completely because it became an ETF. Now, I know some people might think, well, Peter, there's added risk because if you buy the Grayscale Trust, the discount could get even bigger. I suppose that could happen, but it's probably only going to happen if the price of Bitcoin goes down. If Bitcoin goes way up, if Bitcoin hits 100,000, 
I seriously doubt the Grayscale Trust discount is going to be larger than it is right now. In fact, I would imagine that if Bitcoin hits 100000 the discount on this trust will be much smaller because a lot of people will have been attracted into the sector and a fair amount of that money will go into shares of the Grayscale Trust. So if Bitcoin goes way up, you're going to make more money in the trust. The only way you may lose more is if Bitcoin crashes, in which case the discount could actually widen beyond where it already is. But if you're bullish on Bitcoin, you don't expect that to happen. The only people who think Bitcoin is going to crash wouldn't buy Bitcoin or this trust. My point is anyone who is bullish on Bitcoin should forget about buying Bitcoin and just buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which means that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust acts as competition for Bitcoin because money that would have ordinarily gone into Bitcoin will now go into the Bitcoin Trust except none of that money will end up going into Bitcoin itself because the money isn't going into the trust to buy more Bitcoin. It's just going to pay the people who already own shares of the trust who want to sell. When you're running a small business, it's those HR issues that can really kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage, discrimination, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created especially for small business owners. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. So let Bambi change HR from being your biggest liability to your biggest asset. You'll get a dedicated HR manager who will be available by phone, email, and real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day and do it all for just $99 a month. And the best part, it's month-to-month. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel any time. I sure wish Bambi was around when I was starting out. I had to do a lot of this stuff myself until I was eventually able to hire somebody else to do it for me, but it would have been much better had I had something like Bambi to partner with when I was first getting started. But luckily for you, they're there now. So go to Bambi.com gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. There was quite a bit of economic data released on this holiday-shortened week, and I'm just going to focus on a few of the data points that came out, one of them being the current account deficit, which gets very little, basically no coverage in the mainstream media, which is why I am going to talk about it in depth on the podcast. But we got the numbers for the third quarter of 2021. And the current account deficit came in at a much larger than expected $214.8 billion. That is the largest current account deficit in a quarter in 15 years. The estimate was for a $204.8 billion deficit. So we exceeded that. And in fact, the prior quarter's $190.3 billion deficit, that was upwardly revised to $198.3 
billion dollars, so eight billion higher than the original report. Now, the difference between the current account deficit and our trade deficit is that the trade deficit numbers are actually included in the current account numbers. So what's also in the current account that is significant is income on assets, meaning if Americans receive interest and dividends on their foreign investments, then that would reduce our current account deficit. But when we pay interest and dividends on U.S. assets that are held by foreigners, that adds to the current account deficit. Now, of course, other nations have current account surpluses, which they generate not only by having trade surpluses, but by having surpluses in net investment income. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, the U.S. still has that surplus to offset the deficit in trade, but all of that is going to change when interest rates ultimately move up which is another one of the many reasons 
that the Federal Reserve does not want to increase interest rates because the United States owes a lot of money to foreigners. But right now, the U.S. is paying very low interest on all the bonds that our foreign creditors are holding on to. And that is what is working to keep our current account deficit so low. Imagine, though, what's going to happen to the current account deficit if interest rates go up, if the Fed actually raises interest rates to fight inflation, then that is going to increase the burden of servicing our debts because we have a lot of short-term debt, not just the U.S. government, but corporations also borrow in commercial paper markets and have a lot of short-term debt. And as interest rates rise, everybody who is relying on borrowed money is going to have to pay a lot more. And to the extent that we're borrowing that money from foreign savers, that extra interest expense is going to add to an already high current account deficit. And of course, when the U.S. dollar really starts to fall, which I believe is going to happen probably next year, but as the dollar falls, that also worsens the current account deficit because it makes our imports more expensive because the cost of those imports are going up. So a weakening dollar happening at the same time that we're getting rising interest rates, some people might think, well, that's inconsistent because if we're raising interest rates, wouldn't that support the dollar? Well, not if the Fed is behind the inflation curve, not if it's only nominal interest rates that are going up. What if real rates are actually going down even as nominal rates are going up because the Fed is not raising rates high enough to really offset the accelerating inflation, then you can easily have a weakening dollar alongside rising interest rates. In fact, if one of the reasons that interest rates are rising is because global investors are losing confidence in the U.S. dollar, and therefore they're demanding a higher rate of interest to hold dollars, that's another way that you would see a weakening dollar happening at the same time there was rising interest rates. But of course, if that caused the current account deficit to explode because of rapidly increasing debt service costs, because we have to pay all that interest to our foreign creditors, If the current account is really spiraling, that in and of itself weakens the U.S. dollar because that causes our creditors to lose more confidence in the U.S. based on an exploding current account deficit. But of course, that deficit, by definition, puts additional dollars onto the global market for which there is insufficient demand. And so the glut of dollars on the market is pushing down the dollar's exchange rate. So it's a perfect storm. Nobody is really talking about the trade deficits, let alone the current account deficits. This week's number was a 15-year high, but my guess would be next year or maybe the year after that, we are going to be printing all-time record highs in the current account, specifically because interest rates are going to be going up. And even if the Fed doesn't raise rates, the market will. Foreign creditors are going to demand higher compensation to hold any U.S. dollar-denominated debt. And therefore, that is going to be a bigger burden on American debtors who have to service 
those international liabilities. We also got the personal income and spending numbers. This number came out earlier this morning and a little bit below consensus. The estimate was for an increase of 0.5 in personal income and instead incomes only grew by 0.4. Spending came in in line It was supposed to grow by 0.6, and that's exactly what happened. In fact, the prior month's spending number, which was much higher at 1.3, that actually got upwardly revised to 1.4. But as you know, if spending went up by 0.6, but incomes only went up by 0.4, where did the difference come from? Well, either it came from savings, which got depleted, or it came from debt. Maybe some consumers went into debt in order to spend more than they earn. But for those who dipped into their savings, the savings rate declined to 6.9%. That is the lowest level since December of 2017. So we're now well before the pandemic-related stimulus caused the savings rate to shoot up. Well, obviously, Americans have now exhausted that windfall. They depleted that savings war chest that was built up with stimulus money, and now it's gone. And so they're having to go into debt. And in fact, consumers have a double problem because not only have they exhausted their savings, but their cost of living keeps going up. Consumer prices continue to rise, and that is robbing Americans of their purchasing power, although the robber is the government because it's the government that's creating the inflation that is causing the cost of living to go up. But the cost of living is going up, yet consumers have even less savings to afford that increasing cost of living. And so that means that one or two things has to happen. Either the government's going to have to come up with a new round of stimulus to replace the depleted savings so that people can keep up with a rising cost of living because clearly their wage gains are insufficient, so they need more money from the government to be able to keep their economic heads above water. So either we get more stimulus so that consumers can keep on spending, or we don't get more stimulus and we get a recession because consumers are going to have to reduce their spending because they don't have the incomes to spend. They don't have the savings to draw on. And as the cost of necessities like food, energy, insurance, all these things go up, there's less money left over for discretionary spending. So either the government's going to have to supply the money or the spending's not going to happen. So either we have a recession or we have even worse inflation because if the government has to print more money to fund more stimulus spending so that consumers can afford to keep buying stuff at higher prices, well, then we have an even bigger inflation problem on our hands. In fact, looking at the personal income and spending numbers, you get the PCE, which is the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index. This is the Fed's favorite measure of inflation. Now, the reason it's the Fed's favorite is it's because it's the lowest one. So it's the least realistic as far as what's actually happening. It's the government index that 
understates inflation by the largest margin. So, of course, that's why it's the Fed's favorite. Now, of course, it doesn't admit that, but that is the reality. And looking at that number, the increase on the month was 0.6, which matched the increase from the prior month that was originally reported, except that was just upwardly revised to 0.7. But the big number is the year-over-year number up 5.7%. That is the biggest increase in the PCE since 1982. And even if you strip out food and energy, you still got a year-over-year core PCE up 4.7%. Again, the Fed's target for inflation is 2%. And even if you measure inflation using the most dishonest of all government indexes that sugarcoats it the most, you're still way over double what the official target is. Also, by definition, since spending is up 0.6, but prices are also up 0.6 on the same month, that means that consumers are not actually buying more stuff, even though they're spending more money. They're spending more money to pay the higher prices that the stuff costs. And of course, since the PCE isn't accurately measuring the extent to which prices are rising, since it is specifically designed to understate the impact of rising prices, I'm sure that prices on the month were actually up a lot more than 0.6. And since that rise exceeds the increase in spending, consumers are actually buying less stuff despite the fact that they're spending more money because they're not buying more, they're just paying more. Yet the Fed is doing nothing about this inflation problem. Sure, they have announced that they will pick up the pace of their taper so that they stop creating additional inflation a few months earlier than they initially promised. And they are going to finally start raising interest rates from zero a few months earlier than they had initially suggested when they said inflation wasn't a problem at all. But how is that going to make any difference to an inflation problem that is already so big? I mentioned that these are the highest numbers since 1982. Well, in 1982, I think it was June of 82, when we had a PCE number this big. But back then, the Fed funds rate was at 14%. Now it's at zero. That's how a Fed fights inflation. You're at 14%. How can anybody talk about the Fed fighting inflation now when rates are at zero? When the last time it was this bad, rates were at 14%. And of course, the last time it was this bad, it was actually much worse because we are not measuring prices the same way. I'm sure the PCE has been fudged as much as the CPI over the years. And so this is not an apples to apples comparison. We probably have far higher PCE increases now than we did in 1982. Yet in 1982, we had a 14% Fed funds rate and now it's zero. So back then in 1982, we had positive real interest rates because inflation was not 14% in 1982. It was lower than that. It was several percentage points lower than that. It was coming down from the 13.5% peak 
that inflation hit in 1980. And how was the Fed bending that inflation curve? By maintaining positive real interest rates, something that we're not even talking about doing now at the Federal Reserve. I mean, as long as the Federal Reserve is maintaining negative interest rates, it is worsening inflation. It doesn't even matter how negative they are. The fact that they're negative at all encourages people to keep spending and discourages people from savings. Once you're below zero, nobody wants to lose money on their savings. You're not going to encourage people to save by telling them, yes, you were losing 6% a year to inflation, but we're going to raise interest rates to 1%. And so now you're only going to lose 5% a year. So how about saving? People are not going to save under that circumstance. You're going to have to go from a negative yield to a positive yield to induce that type of behavior. And nobody is talking about that happening. Of course, it can't happen because we have so much debt that it is impossible to actually service that debt if the Fed were to raise interest rates to an appropriate level. In fact, people continue to talk about the fact that the Federal Reserve may make a mistake and raise interest rates too much. I was listening to Mohamed El-Aryan talking about that this morning. He was on CNBC specifically warning about this potential mistake. He said that maybe the Fed waited too long to remove the punch bowl, that it did QE too long, it delayed the rate hike too long, and because they did that, they're now going to have to raise interest rates too much, and this is going to push the economy into a recession. Again, nobody seems to understand The mistake has already been made. It was lowering rates in the first place. It was keeping them so low for so long in the second place. There's no way out of this predicament now. The risk is not that the Fed raises rates too much. The risk is that they don't raise them enough. Yes, if the Fed raises rates the appropriate amount, forget about too much. If the Fed just raises interest rates the exact correct amount, which There's really no way to know what that amount is, but it's much, much higher than we are right now and far higher than anything anybody is talking about. But if the Fed does that, not only will it cause a recession, it's going to cause a severe financial crisis, much worse than 08 and again with no bailouts. So when Elarian is talking about, well, we could have a recession if the Fed tightens too much, if they tighten too much, we'll have a depression. We'll have a severe financial crisis, all hell is going to break loose. I mean, there is no way to overstate just how bad things are going to be if the Fed actually fights inflation, which is why they won't do it. I mean, they're going to pretend that they're going to do it, and they may, in fact, raise rates slightly if they can get that far along in the process. But somewhere along the way, the market's going to fall. The economy is going to slip, either enter recession or be close to recession. You know, I keep hearing people also say that the Fed is going to tighten until it breaks something and then it's going to stop. And that's why they're not going to get as far along in the process as a lot of people think. It's not about the Fed breaking something, breaking the stock market, breaking the economy, because the Fed already broke the market. It already broke the economy. What it's been doing all of these years is trying to keep all these broken pieces together. The fact of the matter is they can't do that indefinitely 
The market needs to come down. The economy, unfortunately, needs to be in a recession. And anything the Fed does to prevent these things from happening, that's the mistake. But the real mistake they're going to make is they're going to reverse course when it's apparent the market is going down or the economy is faltering. The Fed is going to ease policy even though the inflation rate is still high and, in fact, may even be rising as the Fed begins to ease because the alternative to continue to tighten policy into a weakening economy is that you weaken the economy even further. And the problem with that is when the economy weakens, Congress wants to stimulate the economy with fiscal policy. But Congress can't do fiscal policy without the cooperation of the Fed. In order to run a fiscal stimulus, you need to run deficits. Well, how do you run deficits if the Fed is not financing them? If the Fed is fighting inflation, it can't also monetize deficits to fund fiscal stimulus. So if the Fed is going to maintain a fight against inflation in the face of a weakening economy, then the government can't do anything to stimulate that economy. We can't get tax cuts. We can't get increases in government spending. Can anybody imagine in this political environment, politicians standing by and doing nothing as their constituents are losing their jobs, as their investors are losing money? Do you think anybody is going to come out and tell the public, you know what, we're out of ammo here, we're done. We've bailed you out, we've provided stimulus, but now, you know, we have all this debt, we have all this inflation, you're on your own, right? This is going to be a horrible recession. I know you're out of work, your stock portfolio is getting killed, but there's nothing we can do about it. You know, you got to figure out on your own because government can't do anything. Is there any way that our politicians are going to level with voters to that extent and tell them the truth? Of course not. The political pressure will be there on the Federal Reserve. It's already been there. It's always been there. And it's going to be stronger than ever in the face of what would be the biggest economic collapse ever. So the Fed is not going to raise interest rates too much. It's not even going to come close to raising them too much. It's not going to raise them enough. It is going to be cutting rates. In fact, I was watching on CNN when they were reporting on the unprecedented collapse in President Biden's approval rating. His approval rating has dropped more than any president going back to Jimmy Carter. Now, maybe even a long way before Jimmy Carter, they just didn't go back any further on this particular report. But Biden is minus 15 points. So his approval rating has dropped by 15 points since he was elected. That compares very unfavorably to Trump, whose approval rating dropped by four points, which was the same drop that Obama suffered. Other presidents like Bush in 1989, his approval went up six points. Bill Clinton's approval went up nine points. George W. Bush, he saw a 36-point rise in his approval rating, basically because of the war on terror. That really helped his numbers early in his presidency. But Biden at minus 15 is worse than Jimmy Carter at this point in his presidency. Jimmy Carter in 1978 was at minus eight points. But another really interesting fact that they pointed out in the recent poll was the question of inflation being a serious problem or a concern. 
And back in 1977, under Jimmy Carter, 79% of the people polled said inflation was a serious problem or concern. This is during the 1970s, the era of stagflation. We had very high inflation, and 79% of the people polled were worried about that. In contrast, the poll that we just took, December in 2021, 84% of the people say inflation is a serious problem or concern. 84%, meaning more people are worried and concerned about inflation today than they were in 1977. And the amazing thing about it is the reaction from the CNN anchor, who was basically puzzled by these numbers because he pointed out, wait a minute, because inflation today is nowhere near as bad as it was back in the 1970s. We had much worse inflation back then, and so he's confused by why people are more worried about inflation today, despite the fact that it's not nearly as bad as it was back in the 1970s, except he's wrong, it's worse. You see, the public knows inflation is really bad because the public's not buying the CPI. The public actually buys real products and the prices are going up much faster than what the CPI reflects. So the real reason that consumers are worried more about inflation now than they were in 1977 is because inflation is actually a bigger problem now than it was back then. And if we still had an honest CPI, if we were still using the CPI that we used in the 1970s, maybe this CNN anchor would realize that. And that's why all this talk, again, about peak inflation is a bunch of nonsense. Several people have emailed me asking me to comment on an interview that they saw on YouTube with Jim Rickards. And Jim Rickards was talking about how this is peak inflation. This isn't even close to peak inflation. If anything, this is trough inflation compared to where it's going. The last time we had peak inflation was 1980. Inflation was at 13.5%. That was peak inflation because it went down every year going forward. But when we were in 1980, when we were actually at peak inflation, nobody knew it. Everybody assumed that inflation was going to continue because after all, we had had inflation for all of the 1970s. So by 1980, the public pretty much accepted inflation as a way of life and everybody believed it was going to get worse. That's why the price of gold was at $800 an ounce. It was a very, very high price. Remember, it started the decade at $35 an ounce, $35 to $800. That is an enormous increase in the price of gold in 10 years. Why were people so willing to buy gold at $800 an ounce in 1980 because they assumed that the inflation of the 1970s would continue in the 1980s and the 1990s. But they were wrong. Everybody was wrong in 1980 about the outlook for inflation because people thought it would continue. That's why gold was so expensive. That's why bonds were so cheap. You could have bought treasuries with a 14% Yield, 30-year treasuries, but people didn't want them. Even though inflation was 13% and treasuries had a positive yield, think about the positive yield on short-term money. The Fed had 
interest rates up at 20%. With 13% inflation, you had 7% real yields. Why did people need such a high real yield? Because they expected inflation to get worse. Even though it was 13% in 1980, people expected it to go higher. And that's why they demanded more interest from their lenders because they believed they needed that extra interest to offset inflation. And the borrowers were willing to pay it because they assumed they would be able to repay their loans with cheaper money. That's why gold was bid up to 800. Again, that's peak inflation because when you're at peak inflation, nobody knows it's the peak. You only know it's the peak with the benefit of hindsight. But again, why is it that inflation peaked? Because we had game changers with Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan. That type of combination was able to bend that inflation curve. We had tight money. We had a Fed that was aggressive in fighting inflation and supporting the value of the dollar. And we had a pro-business, pro-free market, anti-government commander-in-chief in Ronald Reagan. And that was the direction the country was headed. It was going from government is the solution to the government is the problem. Now, fast forward to today. Are there any signs that what we are experiencing right now is anywhere near the peak inflation that Jim Rickards thinks we're at? Well, first of all, interest rates are still at zero. Real interest rates are negative, what, 7%? Inflation is not going to peak with this much complacency. Look at the yield on 30-year government bonds. It's not even 2%. The yield on 10-year treasuries is less than 1.5%. Does that sound like people are expecting lots of inflation in the future, inflation to continue? To me, it shows incredible complacency. Most people probably agree with Rickards that we're at peak inflation. That's why they're not demanding a higher rate of interest on their loans. That's why the price of gold is not going up. People don't expect inflation to continue. They expect the Fed to put out this inflation fire before it really gets started. This is the mirror image of 1980 when we actually had peak inflation. And because everybody assumes inflation is peaked, that's another reason why it hasn't. Because A, the consensus is generally wrong when it comes to making these type of forecasts. But because nobody is worried about inflation, there is no real pressure on the government or the Fed to actually do anything to restrain it. People were worried about inflation in a much bigger way in 1980 than they are today. And there was lots of pressure on government and the Fed to do something. There's lip service now, but nobody actually wants the Fed to do anything. Does anybody want Jerome Powell to do what Paul Volcker did and jack interest rates up so that we have positive real interest rates? I mean, to get positive real interest rates, We got to be north of 7%, even if you believe the government's BS CPI number. Nobody wants the Fed to do that. All we're talking about is whether or not the Fed goes off a zero in March, April, May of next year, and how long does it take the Fed to get back up to 1% or 2%? 
which still leaves interest rates dramatically negative. So basically, Rickards couldn't be further from the truth when he talks about that we've reached peak inflation. Inflation is only just getting started. It doesn't peak when rates are still at zero. It doesn't peak with gold at $1,800 an ounce. It's not peaking with a strong dollar. Remember, in the 1970s, the dollar got destroyed because of inflation. People were worried about the dollar. They were so scared that inflation was going to continue that they were unloading their dollars. That's not happening now. Our foreign creditors are still content to hold on to their dollars because they're not worried about inflation. Despite all of the evidence that inflation is a big problem, the markets still have confidence in the Fed that they're going to do something about the problem, even though they've done nothing but make it worse. And doing something about it is impossible given the fiscal circumstances that the United States is in. Remember, in 1980, though it was painful to do the right thing, we could at least afford to do the right thing. We still had a big trade surplus in 1980. We were still the world's biggest creditor nation in 1980. So financially, we were the mirror image of what we are now, huge trade deficits, the world's biggest debtor nation. We didn't have all this short-term debt all around the world that was going to be more expensive to service when Volcker jacked interest rates up to 20%. The national debt wasn't financed with T-bills. So when rates went up, it affected the new borrowing, but not all the prior borrowing. We are in much worse shape to be able to withstand a war on inflation, which is why we're never going to wage the war because the collateral damage to the economy would be too great to the markets. So no, inflation has not peaked. We're just getting started. Eventually, it will peak. No question, at some point, we will reach a peak. But that peak will come when nobody expects it. Everybody will assume that inflation is a permanent way of life, that it's always going to get worse. Real yields on any kind of U.S. dollar debt will be much higher than they are now, regardless of where the Fed has rates. The markets will have them significantly higher. The price of gold, the price of silver will be much higher than they are today because people will actually be worried. They'll actually be scared about all the inflation yet to come. Forget about the inflation that they had experienced in the past. They're going to start bracing for even worse inflation in the future, and they will bid that into the price of gold. That's what was happening in 1980, which is why whenever people want to go back and compare gold's return and start at 1980 to the present, it always looks like the returns are very low because you're measuring gold from a moment in time when people were far too pessimistic. They believed that inflation would get so much worse based on their past experience. And so the price of gold got way ahead of itself at that point in time. Now, it pulled back down to maybe three, 400 after that big run-up and then built a good base before finally bottoming out at around 280 or so in the year 2000. And now it's back on its way. Of course, it never went back down to the $35 an ounce where it started from. But if you really want to measure gold's inflation protection performance, you really got to start in 1970 to get a better 
barometer, a more accurate reading, you can't start from 1980, which is such an artificially high benchmark to use. But people want to use that benchmark to make it look as if gold is not a good inflation hedge when it's a great inflation hedge. In fact, that's why it went up to $800 an ounce in the first place because people were hedging inflation that never even took place. They were so worried about inflation that they assumed a much higher rate in the 80s and 90s and they ended up getting, and so the gold price got ahead of inflation. Well, right now, the opposite is happening. People are not factoring in nearly enough inflation. They don't believe inflation is gonna continue. They're with Rickards. They think inflation has peaked, and so those optimistic assessments of the future are what is baked into the gold cake, which is why it's not rising. But once people have a more realistic outlook, which is a more pessimistic outlook on the prospects for inflation, meaning it's going to get worse, they will be willing to buy gold. Right now, they're afraid to buy. They know the Fed's going to be hiking rates. They assume that's going to be bearish for gold. It's not bearish at all because these rate hikes, while nominal, are not real. They are not increasing the opportunity cost of holding gold. There is no opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is in holding paper. If you're going to own U.S. Treasuries and you're going to accept a yield of one and a half or two percent, you're losing opportunity because you're losing money because the dollars that you're holding which you're going to be paid when your notes mature, are losing 7% or more of their value every year. That's the opportunity cost. It's in holding interest-bearing notes because the interest isn't high enough to offset the loss of purchasing power due to inflation. So in that environment, if you want to avoid any loss, then you need to get out of paper. And one place you can go is to gold. And the opportunity cost is not owning gold because if you own paper instead, you're going to have huge losses. The way you avoid those huge losses is by owning gold. Now, you can avoid those losses by owning other assets as well. Gold is not the only inflation heads out there. But in an environment of massive inflation, one of the best places to hide out is in gold. And if we were at peak inflation, believe me, people would be buying gold like it's going out of style. The fact that they're not doing it is yet more proof that we're not at peak inflation. Oh, there's one more economic data point I did want to discuss, and that's uh, new home sales. We also got existing home sales too, which were a little bit below estimates, but the new home sales numbers were way below. In fact, More important than the miss in November was the downward revision to October because that month was initially reported at an annualized rate of 745,000. That was revised all the way down to 662,000. Big drop there. And the consensus for November was 770,000 and that came in at just 744,000. And the reason that these weakening new home sales are more important, I think, than the existing home sales is the new home market is where a lot more of the jobs are created because these new homes need to be built. So people need to be hired to help make them. And so a vibrant market for new homes is more important to employment, I think, than just reselling the homes that are already here. And the fact that these new home sales are weakening is a 
weak sign for the economy, but also why are they weakening? One of the reasons is cost because materials are so expensive, labor costs are rising. It's more and more expensive for people to buy new homes. And so more people are having to settle for the homes that have already been built because they're cheaper because they're already here. But there is a drawback when a first time home buyer, for example, buys an existing home versus a brand new home even though you save money up front because the existing home is cheaper, over time, that existing home could cost more money, especially, let's say, during the first five or 10 years of ownership, because there are a lot more things that are likely to go wrong with that home, right? Because it's used. It's like if you buy a used car instead of a new car, right? The new car is brand new and it's under a warranty. And so your repair bills are probably not going to be that high because even if something goes wrong, well, you know, it's covered by warranty. But if you buy a car that's 10 years old, who knows how many problems? The minute you buy it, it needs new brakes. Something happens with the transmission. All sorts of things can go wrong with an old car because the parts wear out. When you get it brand new, you don't have those problems right away. Those problems come up later. Well, it's not as dramatic with homes, but it happens. So when you buy a used home, right, home that's already been lived in by another family or maybe several families have lived in that home and have been using that home, stuff starts to wear out. Stuff depreciates. It needs to be replaced. The maintenance bills go up. Something happens to the roof. You got to repair that. You know, a lot of the appliances, these big ticket appliances, they might have come with the house, but now they start breaking down, right? So a lot of people who are settling for new homes, maybe they haven't owned homes before, they've got a rude awakening when they find out how expensive it's gonna be to maintain these things. I mean, houses are sometimes referred to as money pits, right? Because you have to keep throwing an endless amount of money into this pit. And with inflation, a lot of those costs maintaining your home, those maintenance costs to replace the parts, to hire the labor, all of those costs are gonna be going way up for the typical homeowner. So not only are weakening new home sales a sign of a weak economy because people can't afford to buy the new homes, because more people are buying these already existing homes, I think a lot of homeowners are in for shock. And what does that mean too? I mean, A, they may be more likely to not even make their mortgage payments and walk away from this money pit, or to the extent that they try to keep the house and make all these payments and pay all these bills, well, that means they have to cut back on other spending because the money they would have spent on other goods and services, they're now spending on repair and maintenance bills uh, for their house. Moving on though from the economic news, I did wanna talk a little bit about the political news of the week. The big story, of course, was Joe Manchin basically saying that he cannot support the Build Back Better bill and so it's basically dead. The question is, will it stay dead or will it be resurrected? Look, you got to at least admire Joe Manchin. He has so far demonstrated the courage of his convictions. He knows this bill is a bunch of pork. He knows it's a budget buster. He knows it worsens an already bad inflation problem. And for now, he's saying that he won't support it. The question is, when it comes down to it, as we're getting closer to the midterm elections, if the economy really starts to weaken, 
even if inflation is the reason it's getting weaker, will he be able to continue to resist the pressure from his colleagues to do something? And it's unfortunate because Congress, they don't care if what they do does harm. They just want to do something. You know, it's the opposite of like the Hippocratic Oath that the doctors take to do no harm. We should make politicians take that oath, you know, along with their oath to support the Constitution, although they don't support that oath, so why should they support the other one? But they will pass legislation, even if that legislation is going to do harm, because it looks like they're trying, right? They get credit for effort. Outcome is irrelevant. They just want to act as if they're doing something because the worst thing that you can do is nothing, right? Because you do nothing, then you get blamed. So you have to do something to show that you care and that you're helping. And so if things are getting worse, there is going to be some version of the Build Back Better bill passed. And I'm sure Joe Manchin in the end will support it. In fact, there may even be some Republicans who support it to the extent that the economy is really sputtering going into the elections. But in the short run, this would be a net positive, right? Because if we're not going to have the build back better, that means the deficits are going to be smaller than they otherwise would have been. We're not going to get those tax increases, but we're also not going to get the spending increases. And so the Fed is not going to have to print as much money as would have been the case had this bill been passed. So you can say that, well, isn't this a reason for optimism? And if we weren't already in such dire straits, then yes, it might be. It probably would be. But the fact of the matter is the deficits are already enormous. We did pass the infrastructure bill. That's been passed. There's no real pay-fors in that. So that is completely financed with deficit spending. And the deficits are going to keep going up. So on the margin, Will these deficits be smaller without BBB? Yes. And again, how long will we be without that plan? Because there's going to be some plan. I mean, that's something that you know. The economy is going to slow. The markets are going to turn down, which means something is going to get passed. The government is going to do something to stimulate a weakening economy. And if it's not BBB, it's some other version of the same idea. And so we're going to get even bigger deficits than the ones we have now, even though the ones we have now are horrific. And of course, if the Fed actually comes through with even small rate hikes, that makes a significant impact on the size of the deficits because the deficits go up as interest rates go up, which compounds the problem of rising interest rates. And of course, a lot of people forget interest rates are also part of businesses' costs. So all of the costs that businesses are now absorbing and passing on to their customers, what happens when interest rates go up? Because businesses also have debt And to the extent that their cost of servicing that debt goes up, well, they have to pass that on to their customers. A lot of landlords, well, they have debt too. They have loans on their properties. And if interest rates go up, well, doesn't that have to be passed on to the tenant in the form of higher rents? See, that's another thing that everybody misses, that interest rates going up may in fact worsen inflation if you're measuring inflation with consumer prices because embedded in consumer prices is the cost of debt of all the businesses that are providing goods and services to consumers. 
And so as those costs go up, those higher costs get passed on in the form of higher prices and it shows up in the CPI. Moving from Joe Manchin to the opposite end of the spectrum in the Democratic Party, I wanted to mention Elizabeth Warren's comments. She'd been having a bit of a Twitter war with Elon Musk. But one particular battle that I wanted to comment on was where Elizabeth Warren basically called Elon Musk a freeloader because she doesn't think he pays enough in taxes, right? Despite the fact that for 2021, Elon Musk is going to write the biggest check that any one person has ever written to the U.S. government. Now, forget about the fact that Tesla has had the benefit of government subsidies. I I want to throw that out because I'm not really talking about Elon Musk in particular, but just entrepreneurs, businessmen in general, because here you have Elizabeth Warren, a United States senator, basically accusing businessmen of being freeloaders because she doesn't think they're paying enough taxes, right? That they're not paying a high enough percentage of their income in tax and therefore that makes them a freeloader. But the reality is Elizabeth Warren is a United States senator. And when you're in a congressional glass house, you don't throw stones. U.S. senators don't pay any taxes. Congressmen and women don't pay any federal taxes, at least on their incomes. Yes, if Elizabeth Warren makes an investment and she makes money on that investment and she sells, maybe makes a capital gains or she collects interest and dividends. Yes, she will pay taxes on that money. But to the extent that Elizabeth Warren earns a hefty salary for being a United States senator, she doesn't pay any taxes on that income. Now, of course, Elizabeth Warren would say, wait a minute, Peter, I pay taxes just like everybody else. There are taxes withheld from my pay. Let me show you my pay stuff. See, here's income tax taken right out of my pay. That's not really a tax. That's just to make it appear as if government workers pay taxes. They don't. Government workers are tax takers. They are not tax payers. You see, when you pay a tax, you have to give the government money that it didn't already have. And so the government is a net positive. So if somebody works in the private sector and they get a $100,000 salary from their employer and then they send 30,000 of that to the U.S. government, that's a tax because the U.S. government gets $30,000 that it did not have. So money is going from the taxpayer to the government. Now let's take a situation where you have a government employee. The government is paying one of its own employees $100,000, and then it takes $30,000 back in taxes. Did the government actually get $30,000 in tax revenue? No. The government didn't get $30,000. The government had that $30,000 to begin with. The government pays $100,000 to its worker, and then the worker gives $30,000 back. The government is still net out $70,000. What would happen if instead of giving the worker $100,000 and then taking $30,000 back in taxes, what if the government just said, well, we're going to pay our worker $70,000 and not collect any taxes, right? Well, the worker would be in the exact same position. He would have $70,000. The government would be in the exact same position because it would spend $70,000 on wages. It's in the same position when it collects the taxes. The only reason it goes through all these machinations 
is to create the false impression that government workers are paying taxes so that other people think that they're also helping to support the government. They're not. They're not giving any money to the government. The government is supporting them. The only thing they give to the government is their labor, but that's not a tax. Now, maybe that labor has value. Maybe the public is better off because of the work of these government workers. And in some cases, that is true. But I think in the vast majority of cases, we would be better off if these government workers didn't even do these jobs. The economy would be more efficient and more productive. In many cases, these government workers are just gumming up the works. They're just making the economy less productive and less efficient. They're making it harder for all the rest of us who are working in the private sector and who are paying taxes. So government workers, I don't care. They are not paying taxes. They are getting money from the government. They don't give any money to the government. And so nobody who's working for the government should call anybody in the private sector a freeloader. It's the private sector that pays the taxes and that makes it possible for people like Elizabeth Warren to collect the paycheck from the government because the money she is being paid is coming from the taxes that the private sector is paying into the government. None of that money is coming from the taxes that she pays because she doesn't pay any. She is getting money from the government. And in order for one person to get money from the government, other people have to pay money to the government. And those are the people that Elizabeth Warren is accusing of being freeloaders.